David Howth, Professor of Law and Public Policy, University of Cambridge. David, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series, looking at post-Brexit law and economics in the United Kingdom. We had a white paper, the Great Repeal Bill, published yesterday. What do you make of it? Well, it didn't resolve all the problems that we were talking about yesterday in the hour before it was published. It's resolved some of them. In fact, rather oddly, it seems to have envisaged scenarios that we thought were quite extreme uh, coming to the fore, but it didn't resolve some of the more uh, obvious problems. Uh, So, for example, there's a a big problem about what to do about pre-Brexit law, where there's a British statute made before Brexit, and an EU law, again made before Brexit, where the British statute is incompatible with the EU law. Now, before Brexit, in the period we've been in since 1973, it turns out the British courts sort of struck down or disapplied that British statute. And they did that famously with laws to do with fishing in in the Factotame case. Now, one of the questions that we were asking yesterday was, well, what happens after Brexit if that situation arises again? Uh, Would it be possible for a British court to say, uh, the other side of Brexit, this British statute that came about before we left was incompatible with EU law at that time and therefore shouldn't be applied? There are definite possibilities where that might come about. For example, if in the next two years before we actually leave, the UK Parliament were to pass laws about immigration, in particular about uh, social security and benefits, which would be incompatible with EU law as it now stands. The theoretical possibility was that a British court might strike down UK statute as incompatible with EU law as it stood at the time. Putting that forward is a rather extreme possibility, but it turns out that in the white paper on the so-called Great Repeal Bill that came out just an hour after we were talking about this, the government is saying that that, that's precisely what might happen. So this is a rather extraordinary turn of events. There are other problems, though, which it turns out that the white paper doesn't resolve, which are just as difficult, but in a way less radical. Catherine Barnard gave a talk in the afternoon. She had a copy and had been talking to the media about the Great Repeal Bill, which some people say is wrongly titled because it's not repealing anything. It's incorporating all the EU laws into UK law. Well, that's not quite fair. It will repeal on the day of Brexit, so not yet, only when Brexit happens. It will repeal the European Communities Act 1972. But what it then does is it replaces the legal authority granted by that Act to make various EU provisions UK law, it will replace what the European Communities Act said with another provision that will have the same effect, Well, although not for everything. It isn't true to say it doesn't repeal anything. It does. It, it kind of knocks down the wall and then rebuilds it with slightly different bricks later. And rebuilding that wall, a key part of your talk was about who has authority in the legislative programme. Is it the government? Is it Parliament? Is it the House of Commons? Is it the House of Lords? And then that so-called Henry VIII clause, maybe the government will just become the enactor of the law without having to put the laws to Parliament. 
Yes, the, the danger is that because of the, the, the vast amounts of law that needs to be adjusted, because there are all sorts of, of references to European institutions in the laws it stands, that just, just won't work if we're not in the European Union. We're, we'll be asking for, the, for uh, decisions or remarks by EU bodies that won't actually talk to us. Because of that, there'll have to be a lot of changes made to adjust UK law to make sense. Because of the great vast volume of that, the government's saying, oh, we can't put these things through Parliament in, in a proper bill. We'll have to do it by delegated legislation where ministers legislate, but sometimes with parliamentary votes and sometimes without parliamentary votes, sometimes with the theoretical possibility of a parliamentary vote, but which the government can avoid if it wants to. And so what the White Paper says is, well, in fact, it's just the kind of normal practice that if a change is a small change, then we'll do it in a way that means that Parliament has a theoretical possibility of intervening, but in practice can't. You can only have a vote if the government wants it to have a vote. But if there are bigger changes, then we'll do it in a way where there needs to be a vote by both houses in favour of the change. That, that's kind of normal practice. The problem is that, in a way, it's up to the government to decide which side of the line that falls. They're also saying, oh, if you have major changes of policy, as opposed to just tidying up, then uh, we'll put that into a proper bill. But again, it's the government that decides that, whether it wants to go with the, the full law route or whether it wants to go with the delegated legislation route. It, it's very important to, to mention the problem that if the governments are using a delegated legislation route, if in effect ministers are legislating rather than parliament, then parliament can't amend what's being proposed. There are lots of examples where the government might say, well, we don't think this is a change of policy, but everyone else says, yes, it is a change of policy, where some uh, EU function is not being in British law. You can imagine this in the area of competition law. At the moment, under EU law, we have, our competition authorities have to take into account what the EU competition authorities want, or in environmental law, uh, where there are various standards that, that, that are set at the European level. So the government might say, well, this is not a change in policy, it's just getting rid of something that, by definition, we no longer have to do uh, because we're out of the EU, where other people say, yes, that's a massive change of policy. So the government then says, oh, well, we're going to do this by a, uh, a delegated legislation, we not by a full act, and there's nothing anyone can do about it if that's what they do. Uh, just, everyone else is just stuck with it. It's, on, a, on what's called a negative procedure, where Parliament could in theory vote against it, but in practice can't, or at least the House of Lords can, but the House of Commons can't, then there won't be any votes. In fact, there's a very inaccurate uh, paragraph in the white paper that says that, uh, says that members of Parliament can require debates and votes on all delegated legislation. That is just not in practice true. At least it's not in practice true in the House of Commons. But you seem to be predicting a legislative landscape post-Brexit where the government has poorly framed the papers it's presented to Parliament, therefore there may be challenges to what it does and how it does it. Well, it's important to say that nearly all of this is happening pre-Brexit. What the government wants to do with the so-called Great Repeal Bill is to take the powers to make all of these changes before Brexit, in the next two years. It says, well, these powers might be needed after Brexit, as well, but the whole aim of the exercise is to make sure that when we 
reach the point of leaving, there are no great holes in the legal and regulatory regimes of all the things that the EU's been doing. And so the, the process of change, of changing existing EU law, taking out references to EU bodies, inserting references to UK bodies or to new UK agencies that are being invented for these purposes, or just missing out the function altogether and not doing it, all that stuff the government is aiming to do before Brexit, not after. And the timescales of this are far too short. There's no way this is going to be done accurately or well. And so therefore it's going to be challenged? Well, legal challenges are possible, although a lot of this is under delegated legislation. The challenge can only be that the, the delegated legislation goes outside the uh, the powers granted to the government by the Great Repeal Bill, and we haven't seen the, the, any draft yet of what precisely it will say. I mean, that's theoretically possible. There are lots of other legal challenges possible before then anyway on, on other grounds. That was a completely different topic that we were talking about yesterday morning. The, the white paper on the Great Repeal Bill doesn't seem to have touched. And so what are your major concerns? If we take first Parliament and ministers taking authority away from Parliament in terms of legislation, that's quite serious. Well, what's happening is, in a way, quite strange. A lot of the, the campaign on the Leave side was predicated on the idea that Parliament would get its sovereignty back. But what's actually happening is precisely the, the, the areas of the law where Parliament had ceded its sovereignty, at least temporarily, to the EU, those are precisely the areas that the government is now grabbing. And so a poor old Parliament is in exactly the same position pre- and post-Brexit. It's just it has a, a different outside body which has, has the power instead. Previously that might have been the, the European Commission and now it's the British government. And people have referred to what they call Henry VIII clauses. That's about governments dictating what happens. Well, it all depends on the procedures. The Henry VIII Clause is delegated legislation that can change primary legislation, that can change as passed by Parliament. I should say, by the way, it's got nothing to do with Henry VIII. It's a complete misnomer. My, um, my uh, colleague at Cambridge, Sir John Baker, great legal historian, pointed out several years ago that Henry VIII himself never asked for such powers and was never granted them, that in the... Um, the, the act of proclamations, uh, he couldn't make proclamations that changed the law. And in fact, the first uh, one of these so-called Henry VIII clauses anyone can spot is in the late 19th century. It is a problem that ministers can change laws passed by Parliament by their hand. And if the procedures are, for example, on the negative procedure, which they really shouldn't be, but if they are, then that gives ministers uh, complete control of what the law is as far as the Commons is concerned. There are procedures in the law that, that might block this, although the irony that we're now dependent on the, uh, the undemocratic House to uh, control the powers of an overmighty government. Um, um, is, is, that's even, even more odd. Th this kind of procedure is thought to be, by a lot of people, exceptional and on the edge of illegitimate. The reason the government is uh, saying they need those powers is because EU law, as it's come into British law, hasn't come in just by the processes 
that are laid out in the European Communities Act 1972. Some of the um, EU law has actually been passed into proper full-scale British statutes. Equality Acts, for example, some, some employment law, some environmental law. And so what the government's saying is that um, because they have to tidy up everything, it doesn't make any sense to tidy up only half of what's, what's there, they need the power to tidy up the full statutes as well as the delegated European Communities Act. So that, that, that kind of makes sense. You know, the the counter-argument would be, well, if you're going to level this, why aren't you levelling up rather than levelling down? You know, why aren't you using primary legislation for more and not using delegated legislation for, for the whole field? And the government's answer to that is there's no time. That's the underlying problem of everything. There is no time. A lot of this process is far too short. Designing, drafting... Uh, new law is not easy. It's not. It can't be done by amateurs. It can't be done by politicians on the hoof and the floor of the House of Commons. It needs to be thought through, and there's just not enough time to think it through. Now, Catherine Barnard had a copy of the Great Repeal Act in her hand. She was quite damning of how superficial it was, like just a few paragraphs on devolution, and she predicted that it would lead to quite a lot of chaotic decision-making. Do you agree? Well, she had the white paper rather than the bill. We don't have the bill yet, so that just shows how we're not very far down the line. I think a certain amount of chaos is inevitable, and that's just because of the lack of time. And Even if you look at the act that Parliament just passed, the act giving authority to the Prime Minister to write the letter, the notification of intention to withdraw letter, to Donald Tusk. If you just look at that act, it's very bizarrely drafted and doesn't seem to do what it's supposed to do. And this is obviously the most important act that's been passed by Parliament for many decades. And even that has got puzzles in it that no one can quite work out. You, you hit on the word decide, didn't you? Well, there is this, this puzzle, which, which someone's got to resolve, that Article 50 says that when a, a, a member state decides to leave, it then writes the letter of the notification of intention to withdraw. And so the obvious question to ask is, when did the United Kingdom decide to leave? In her letter to Donald Tusk, the the Prime Minister implies that that was done by the referendum. But if you look at the Miller case, the Supreme Court says that that isn't the case legally. It might be true politically, but it's not true legally because the referendum was not a legally binding act. It was simply a political one. So in legal terms, the referendum couldn't decide. Then you might think, well, didn't Parliament decide when it passed this bill, another 2017 Act? But oddly, the Act doesn't say so. The Act simply authorises the Prime Minister to write the letter, this procedural step. Now, you might say, well, that, that assumes that somebody's made the decision, because Article 50 says you can only write the letter after, you, after the country's made the decision. But it doesn't say who made the decision or when. So Parliament just assumes somebody's made the decision, but it doesn't specify who. And then if, if you look at the Prime Minister's letter, again, she doesn't claim the government decided. She says, as I said, the referendum decided, which, which in legal terms can't be the case. And then she says that it was, it was reaffirmed by Parliament, but Parliament didn't. So you might have expected the government to take responsibility, to say, yes, we decided on behalf of the country to leave, but the Prime Minister at no point says that. And in fact, before the Miller case and before the 
Act was passed, 2017 Act was passed, the government couldn't decide because that's, that's what the Supreme Court decided. So there was a small time after the bill had gone through, the 2017 bill had gone through, it became the Act, 2017 Act, when the government possibly could have decided, although possibly might not have been able to decide, because the Act itself didn't actually authorise them to decide. It only authorised them to write this letter. And so no one can tell you at the moment who decided and when it was decided uh, on behalf of the country to leave the European Union. It's the result of doing everything very fast, and and no one one has quite worked out what the details are. And we did indeed hear from Martin Steinfeld. He said he expected there to be a lot of Miller-type challenges to the legislation as it goes through, whether or not European law still applies or still did apply. Do you agree with that? Miller-style challenges are to the process, they're not to the content. And yes, there are some possible challenges still out there. There there are some already going on in the Irish courts, which have to do with the issue of whether an Article 50 notice is revocable or not. And and, uh, most people at the conference yesterday, and I think most experts, think that an Article 50 notice is revocable. And I think most people in Brussels think it's revocable as well. So so, so there are legal challenges out there trying to do that. There's actually a more important one, I think, which is... There's an important question about what happens at the end of the negotiating process when the, the agreement, if there is an agreement, comes back to Parliament. The government has promised a vote in Parliament at that stage, but it's not clear legally whether that vote is enough. If you read the 2011 European Union Act, which is the, the act that the coalition government passed, creating what's called the referendum lock, which is the idea that any new treaty, like the Lisbon Treaty or the Maastricht Treaty, which increased the powers of the European Union over Britain, would need a referendum before it could be ratified. But the thing is, that act did something else. It said that even if the powers of the European Union over Britain did not increase, if a treaty negotiated was a treaty that uh, amended or replaced, and that's the cr- crucial word, or replaced the EU treaty, then it could only be ratified by an act of parliament. And there is an argument, you know, whether it will succeed or not, I don't know, that there is an argument that the agreement made between the UK and the 27 is, at least for the UK, a replacement of the treaties. And in fact, the the, the Great Repeal Bill is doing some replacing, isn't it? So there's lots of replacing going on. And the question is whether that then brings into play the 2011 Act. And so it would be impossible for, for the government to ratify that agreement without an Act of Parliament. That, that's just an example of complications now, where there are some process-style challenges still possible. There were rumours that the government was going to propose to repeal the 2011 Act. But there's no sign of that in the white paper on the Great Repeal Bill. Repealing the 2011 Act would be a way out of the problem for them, although it does look kind of odd that you have this basically Eurosceptical Act which is being repealed before we've actually left. But will it all be all right in the end? Are the Remainers, the Ramoners, the Sceptics, are they over-egging the pudding on the impact of brexiting the EU? No. That's a political question rather than a legal one, so I'm no more qualified to answer that than anybody else. But it seems to me that Brexit will have long-term consequences for British politics. The country is divided. 
it will remain divided on these lines for probably the rest of my life. Well, thank you very much indeed, David Howarth, Professor David Howarth, a humble lawyer, for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today on the challenges of a post-Brexit UK legal and economic systems. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.